You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me always. And Eric, today is Wednesday, which means it's time to dive into the mailbag. We've got a lot of questions, right? We sure do. It also means that I kind of lead the show for once, which is uh, fun on my end. i got to read the questions. So um, <laughs> a little bit more responsibility. I'll, I'll start if we're hey, ready, Hey, you Matt. want more responsibility, I'll hand, it, I'll hand this off to you. I'll let you, uh, let you roll. I guess Matt's leaving the podcast is what's just been announced. I'm just a solo show. So yeah, see you later. <laughs> um, all right, first question from at Joe Willie seventy. What is the contingency plan for the tight end position going forward? Um, I thought we'd start off talking a little bit about what is obviously the big news of the week, which is Jacob Breland now out for the season with an injury. A guy who was on pace. I I posted a tweet on Monday after the news that. You know, he was on pace to have over 800 receiving yards and 12 touchdowns in a right. six-game reg- or a 12-game regular season um, before this injury. And I, going back at the record books, this would have been that would have been an all-time tight end statistical season at Oregon. And obviously, he doesn't get to do that now. And it's not just you lose that aspect; it's what what's next. So it's a good place to start. What's the contingency plan at tight end? Well, Oregon has another tight end out for the season in Cam McCormick, who's probably arguably your second best tight end. Yep. Uh, so that's unfortunate. Um, and then you move down, it's Hunter Cantmore and Ryan Bay are a couple of experienced seniors and juniors. And then you've got a couple of freshmen in Spencer Webb and uh, Patrick Herbert. So uh, the cupboard's not bare. There are four players available, but it's certainly not best-case scenario in terms of these aren't the guys that you're really grooming for this situation to be kind of the, the top tight end on the team. I think that in, in a perfect world, either Breland or McCormick fills that role. Um, and now you're kind of left with, a group of guys who I think can definitely fill the hole, but I don't know if they're going to ever be able to kind of replicate the production you would have gotten out of Breland or McCormick. Yeah, this is a deal where it, it's kind of crappy all the way around. Like McCormick yeah. going into the year was supposed to be healthy and was going to be a big piece to this offense and just never could, could get healthy. And that kind of set the group back just a little bit. And then, Unfortunately, you know, the, the one guy that you probably couldn't afford at the position to get hurt after that is Breland and he has now gotten hurt. And what makes it really awful is you never want to see guys get hurt, but, but just like Gus Cumberlander two weeks ago with Breland, yeah. this was a guy that he's, Breland has, has had solid years. His sophomore year, he was pretty good. I don't know though if, if you would ever consider him like a top three or, or four tight end in the conference at the time. Uh, last season he was okay. You know, I, I think he had some bright moments and, and he had probably some games where he disappeared a little bit. Um, but this year he came into his final season and he, he really wasn't a guy that was on a lot of draft boards. Like you, you would find them maybe in the fourth or fifth round, but he was a guy that, that was not listed as a, as a marquee p- player at his position on a national level and in the offseason and now into the first six games of the year, he had shown that. He had elevated his game. He he had taken it to another level and was, you know, every single game was increasing his value for the NFL at the next level to the point where 
today we're recording this podcast and a lot of the national media outlets are, are releasing their, you know, mid-season All-American lists. And Breland is a first or second team All-American at tight end, yeah. you know, based off of the production of the first six games of his, of his senior season. And so you're seeing a guy get hurt where he put in the time and he made himself into a, a, a big time NFL draft pick and then now might see it all get washed away because of an injury. That just, that's sucks. Like that, that, that's the worst kind of an injury. Like all injuries are bad, but those are the kind that you really feel awful about because this is a guy that made himself a lot of money and now might not get half of that. We don't know, but how does Oregon move on? Well, it's unfortunate because they don't have a bye week to, you know, get a little extra prep time and stuff like that. And they don't have. Uh, a soft opponent to, you know, to ease guys into. They, they arguably play the toughest game of yeah. their schedule, uh, without their best tight end, which is going to be awful. Uh, and so guys are going to have to step up. Like you said, Hunter Campmoyer and Ryan Bay are probably going to be the two guys that, that move up into the depth chart. But Chris Ball told you right away uh, at the press conference on Monday that you know, Spencer Webb is back to tight end. And I think that's the guy, that's going to be the wild card. Like, I, I think you feel comfortable with Hunter Campmoyer and Ryan Bay in the blocking game, but they're probably now going to be, you know, there's going to be some questions, fair or not. You know, that's the reality of how much of an impact can those two guys make in the passing game. But if Spencer Webb can can figure things out, can can practice at a high level consistently day in and day out, week in and week out and be able to be sound in the run and in the pass game. I think he's got the talent and the athletic ability to step right in and there'll, there'll be a drop off, no doubt, but he has the ability to, to be another difference maker at that position group. I'm going to move a question up in our queue that kind of touches on that from at Saban Brab, what is keeping Spencer Webb from taking on a larger role at the tight end spot? And I thought that we just that was supposed to be later down on the list of questions, but I thought I'd move it up because it's pretty per- pertinent to what you were talking about, Matt. And I think a couple of things in terms of the tight end spot. A, he was moved to slot receiver um, at one point because of the receiver uh, ish- injuries, and that was part of why he wasn't playing very much at tight end, obviously. Um, and now he is, as Matt said, coming back to tight end. So. That certainly played a role. And I think the other thing is is that you have to realize that the tight end position is more than just running routes and catching the football. And I think speaking with players in the past, there were issues maybe with Spencer Webb and blocking was, yeah. was something that we had heard from a couple different players. And um, that's a big element of the position, obviously. Um, again, the, the, the position isn't just go out and run a route and, and catch the football, you have to be blocking on maybe first and second down on run plays. And if you're not capable of doing that at a high level, that unfortunately stops you from seeing the field. So I think that plays into part of it. Um, the other thing is that kind of I think of is they moved to receiver, and the thought was he was going to be a decent role at that position. And frankly, he didn't do much at receiver. What did he have, like three catches? in the last five weeks. Um, you know, in the Auburn game, he had the huge touchdown catch that was honestly still one of the highlights of the season, but really haven't seen much from him since. And that was a situation where, for especially his first couple of games, he had a ton of opportunity. So something yeah. is keeping him back. Now, I, I agree with what Matt is saying. I think in a best-case, best-case scenario, Spencer Webb puts it all together because I think he has the highest ceiling of anybody on this roster right now at that position. Um, and 
and I'm not sure it's all that close, just from a physical perspective, right? Yeah, he. I mean, he's he's drastically uh, a, a different player than everybody else at that position group. Um, you look at the the guys that are available. Ryan Bay's, you know, he's a six foot three, two hundred and thirty seven, two hundred and forty pound guy. Like Spencer Webb is significantly bigger uh, than Ryan Bay is, and he's probably more athletic. Hunter Campmoyer is probably closer in size to what Spencer Webb is, but he is not even close to the level of an athlete that Spencer Webb is. I mean, none of those two guys have the ability to consistently be split out into the slot to help Oregon at that position. It, it, it's just the reality. It's, it's not that they're bad players. It's just that's where things are at for that position group. Webb is six foot six, 246 pounds, uh, and, and is a guy that can go down the field and, and make plays in the passing game and has the size to, you know, be a force, uh, in, in the run game as well. Now, um, what's next for, for Patrick Herbert? I think that's another one. Um, will we see him play? Uh, he's six foot five. He's 245 pounds. He's a guy that, you know, probably has the athletic ability, at least right now, to to get out on the field and and play in some capacity. Is is he gonna be a guy that's gonna play a ton? I don't really know, and I think that's probably what's gonna be decided in the next probably two or three weeks. Is how much can can we throw onto Patrick Herbert, and how much of an impact is is he gonna be able to make? And if it's minimal, is it worth? wasting a year where he doesn't make much of an impact, whereas they could save him and redshirt him, or is he going to be a guy that's going to be in a position to to make these plays and, and get out on the football field uh, on a regular basis and, and help Oregon play? I mean, you look at Patrick Herbert, he's played in two games. He played against Colorado, uh, and he played against Nevada. And I think the Colorado game is a sign of we need to see what he can do. This is an opportunity to do it. Uh I don't know if he'll play this week against Washington, but you know maybe Washington State presents an opportunity for him to play too. So I, I think we'll see Patrick Herbert play in a couple, couple more games in the next four or five weeks just to see what he can do and if if they need to, to throw him out there. Yeah, and there's another question here. I'll just we'll just jump down the line here because it touches on Herbert and I have some thoughts as well. But from at JD High Roller, are we going to get a Herbert to Herbert connection this season? Even if it's not for a touchdown, it would be pretty cool. Um, Along the lines of what Matt was saying, Cristobal spoke directly about Patrick Herbert in his quote is, Patrick is going to be an excellent football player. We're just going to have to accelerate his development. So to me, that quote suggests that Cristobal feels that they're going to need to play Patrick Herbert in some capacity or that they're going to need to have him ready in some capacity. That kind of reads to me as we're going to need to get him ready. Like he needs to be ready to play because his time is kind of right now. And, and it makes sense because just like we said about how Spencer Webb maybe is the most high upside guy. If if it's not Spencer, it's it's Patrick Herbert in terms of the guy that you could see that could put it all together and be the most but maybe complete in the passing game. Because not, not to drag Ryan Bay or Hunter Cantmore, but that's not really where they're going to thrive. And we saw it um, with Hunter Cantmore on that what would have been a touchdown play probably uh, on uh, I think it was in the third quarter where he just did, he turned it and he didn't jump and the ball went right kind of right over his fingertips, you know, and you can, there's been some debate on the side about whether that was catchable or not. And, and I, I don't think there's any question that Jacob Breland makes that play. 
Yeah. That ball wasn't that much overthrown. That ball, if, if he turns and it leaves his feet six to eight inches, that's a catch. But he didn't. And I, I think there's legitimate concerns about those two guys in the passing game. And, and maybe I'll be proven wrong. I'd love to be proven wrong. But I, I look at those and I go, I'm not sure those are two guys you really can rely on too much there. So Patrick Herbert and Spencer Webb could be the two guys that can do that. And that would be a big development. And I agree with Patrick Herbert. It would be cool, to obviously, to have the the touchdown or the the connection with his brother. But at the same time, it would also just be great from a team perspective of they need something from the tight end position. And if he can give them anything, that'd be a huge development. Because I think going into this last game against Colorado, the plan was entirely for him to redshirt and not use him this season. And now they're going to have to regroup and figure something out. So if you can get anything out of Patrick Herbert, that's a win in my mind. Yeah, I, I think the chances of uh, Herbert to Herbert touchdown have significantly gone up. Uh, yes, in the last week. Yes. Um, I, I, it, it, I think he's gonna play. Because, no offense to Ryan Bay and to Hunter Campmore, but I, they, I just don't see them being able to execute exactly what, Ryan, uh, Jacob Breland was doing in, yeah. in the passing game situation. And you asked Crystal Ball if the Breland injury and the lack of, you know, McCormick, and, you know, what we don't know with Herbert and what little we've seen of, of Spencer Webb, does that open the door for maybe four more, you know, four wide sets, more four wide sets with four receivers? And I think he, he came out and was like, no, that's not our identity. We're going to play with tight ends. So if, if, if they're going to play with tight ends and they're going to throw the football with their tight ends, they're going to have, to, I think they're going to have to, Ask you know Spencer Webb and, and Patrick Herbert to play more, and like you, I'd love to be wrong about Hunter Campmore and Ryan Bay. I'd love for them against Washington to show up, and you know those guys combined for eight catches for 125 yards and two touchdowns. Like that, I, I would eat crow to you know to the day I die if, if you know. I'd love to, I love to see that happen for for those two guys, but I just don't think that's going to happen. So I think we'll see more of Webb at tight end, and we'll see more of Patrick Herbert at tight end. And, and I could almost foresee a situation here where on running plays, on clear rundowns, on first and second, it's Campmore and Bay, who are very good blockers. We should mention we're seeing the field, even with Breland available, in blocking situations. I wouldn't be shocked at all to see those guys out there a lot on blocking plays, or, or I guess designed run plays, but see a little bit more of Webb and Herbert when it's you know, second and 12 for third and eight, you know, plays where it's clearly going to be a pass just because those guys' skill set on those type of plays is, I think, far greater than what we've seen so far from the other two. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it's it's going to be interesting. I don't want to, again, I don't want to be too down on Campmore and Faye and say you have to get huge production out of Webb and Herbert because I think that's kind of unfair to everybody involved. At the same time, though, I really do think that, like, Best case scenario, they are getting contributions from these younger guys because I think it's a lot to ask Campmeyer and Bay to, to really carry that position group. And again, it's it's a bummer that Oregon is everything is kind of firing on all cylinders right now. And a big component of this offense, Jacob Breland, who really was Herbert's favorite target, uh, is down now for the rest of the season. That's that's just really unfortunate because because I think you were just starting to see kind of it all to come together now with all the receivers coming back. And uh, and now you kind of are missing another one of those components. So that's a bummer, um, obviously. And then our fourth question from at Clear Duck with Breland out, who becomes Herbert's favorite receiver now? I say Micah Pittman. He can stretch the field or become a possession receiver, and he plays with passion. 
Um, I think that's a good pick. I, I like Michael Pittman a lot. Another guy who I think, I don't know if he gets as much appreciation as he probably deserves, but. Jalen Red. Some time. Exactly. I'm going to give him some, he's had five straight games with a touchdown. And I don't know if that's been overlooked or not, but that's very significant. That's very impressive. Um, last game, he obviously had two touchdowns. He had the reception and also the touchdown to kind of the jet sweep uh, right before the half to make it a 24-3 game. Um, his last four games in particular, he's playing at a very high level in the passing game. Um, just, you know, he's always been capable in the screen game, but we're now starting to see him kind of move the ball downfield. And I, I just think his role can is something we have to pay attention to, just can he become, I don't know, it's hard to expect a 5'8 guy to be your, like, go-to, go-to guy. Sure. But can he be somebody that you rely upon for five or six catches a game and, and, and is kind of somebody who is your ultimate gadget guy? Because that's kind of what he's been in terms of they find creative ways to use him. I mean, you think back to the touchdown he had against Cal on on that uh, screen pass near the goal line where he kind of comes back in motion and then comes out. We think about the end around. We think about... Uh, a couple of the other plays that utilize him in. I, I just think his value is going to continue to grow and grow. And because he's shown time and time again now with five straight games of the touchdown, uh, he can deliver in those spots. I think he's someone you have to keep an eye on for him. Another guy who's been really quiet recently, I was just looking at the stats, um, is Johnny Johnson. Uh, he started the season really as kind of point, you know, 1A or 1B for her, for Herbert in terms of his favorite target. You know, those first three games, the non-conference, you know, 7 for 98 against Auburn, 449 against Nevada, 8 for 76 and two touchdowns against Montana. It really felt like he had taken this big step. But the last three games since then, 3 for 41 against Stanford, 1 for 11 against Cal, 2 for 24 against Colorado. Um, I just think looking at that, He's somebody who's shown he's capable. I would expect maybe he's going to be somebody who takes on a little bit bigger role here now without Breland. Um, or maybe it's a thing where, like we've talked about, the additions of Pittman and Johnson, such as a Jawan Johnson and Schooler, sort of take away a little bit from his production. But I think those are two guys who were such big parts of the passing game in non-conference play while everybody else was getting back healthy. Um, I just think they position themselves to, to again carry a big role, uh, you know, now without Breland. I I I think your your pick of Jalen Red is is spot on. I mean, he's like you said, five touchdowns in five straight games. The last two games in, in Pac-12 play, he's led the team in receptions. He had uh, five for 36 and a touchdown uh, against. California, he was tied for the lead in receptions in that game with Breland. Um, Breland had more yards with 87. And then against Colorado, he led the team in receptions with four for 75 yards, and he had a touchdown. Plus, he had uh, the one run for three yards. And and um, I, I I think this is the guy that right now things are are progressing. Oregon has figured out how to use Red a little bit better. Probably the guy's probably elevated his game a little bit. Um, and, and he's probably in that, in that groove right now. So I, I think Red's probably a good choice. Um, I think Pittman certainly has that capability, um, to become that player. I mean, four catches for 43 yards against California two weeks ago, this past weekend against Colorado, three catches for 57. So, you know, seven catches for what is that? Almost a hundred yards. Uh, in, in his exactly a hundred yards. If, if I'm looking at it right. Yeah. A hundred yards, yeah, seven catches for a hundred yards. And, 
and two games. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that number bumps up a little bit. Johnny Johnson's one that I felt like, you know, he started off really, really strong for Oregon, um, in the first three games of the year, you know, game one, he caught seven passes for 98 yards. Game two against Nevada, uh, he had four for 49 and then against Montana, he came out and, uh, had another solid game with eight catches for 76 and two touchdowns. So I, I think those are probably going to become the three go-to guys. Um, the one guy I will say as the wild card is going to be Jawan Johnson because he caught his first pass and then another one against Colorado. Uh, he had two catches for 36 yards. He is – you can totally tell he is a lot different. Uh, he is a different receiver body type than any other guy that they have at the position. He almost looked like a tight end out there with how big he was. And he dropped a touchdown pass. <laughs> he dropped another pass as well that would have gone for a first down. So I, I think those three, Jalen Red, Micah Pittman, and Johnny Johnson are your most likely uh, guys to become Herbert's number one. But – if if Johnny if Juwan Johnson gets continues to rehab well continues to you know progress in his rehab and get himself back into shape for games and um, gets into his rhythm, it wouldn't surprise me if all of a sudden the last four or five weeks of the year Juwan Johnson leads the team in receptions and touchdowns and yards. Well, I, and I had one thought on that. I'm actually surprised we didn't have a question. You mentioned Juwan's body type. I'm surprised we didn't have a question asking about Jawan playing tight end. I'm, I'm actually relieved we didn't because that doesn't really work. Again, we kind of goes back to the Johnny Wilson question from last week where clearly Jawan Johnson has the body type, but there's a lot more to that position than just being a large human being and able to catch a football, right? So sure. uh, I don't think that's a fit there, but I, I agree that he has to be someone <clears throat> who's considered, who's under consideration for that group. I, I think. I think there are three or four guys capable right now, like we've kind of established. I agree with the, the number, the guys you ran down, the guys I ran down. Now it's a matter of who actually goes out and, and, and does it. And I think we'll get a really good idea against a Washington defense, which at times has shown it's capable of, of really playing really good defense against really good receivers. You go back to that game against USC not too long ago up in Seattle. So it's going to be a challenge this week for sure. But I agree. We, we've got a, a group of guys now that are capable of being that go-to or, or Herbert's number one, and it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks who steps into that role completely. All right, let's take a quick break here from our sponsors. You're listening to the Mailbag Wednesday edition of the Odds and Audibles podcast. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me uh, on the show, as he always is, answering your biggest questions for Oregon football, Oregon basketball, recruiting related. Uh, obviously, the first half was heavily dominated, probably by the biggest news of the week, which is Jacob Breland being out for the year. Uh, but we've got four more questions for you, Eric. Let's let's dive right in. All right. Fifth question is from at Josh Harden underscore four. And it's a basketball question, Matt. I think this might be our first basketball question so far. How does the NCAA quote-unquote miss a clearance state, referring to Enfali Dante, um, I'll let you take that one, Matt, because you've done a lot of the reporting on, sure. on the story. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar, uh, Dante released a statement to uh, Sham Sharina of the Stadium of the Athletic on Tuesday morning saying that the NCAA did not get his uh, process of, I guess, admissions cleared. Um, 
and that he is now shooting to to join the the Ducks on December 14th as his enrollment date. I think that's the the, the first day after classes of fall term end. Um, he says, I have completed my academic requirements and I'm currently waiting for the NCAA eligibility process to finalize. We are hopeful that this will conclude soon and I have asked the NCAA to keep my goal of a December 14, 2019 enrollment date in mind. Every prospective student athlete that purchases an NCAA eligibility center ID, regardless of their gender or origin, should be entitled to a timely and transparent process that's in line with the student's targeted enrollment date. I read that as he's saying the NCAA did not um, process his admissions or eligibility, you know, requirements um, in a timely manner, and that's why he's not able to enroll at at Oregon uh, to compete athletically. Um, I don't know if that's I, I don't know. I, I, I we don't have any way of verifying that. So it's it's difficult to go through that, but yeah, if if that is indeed what happened, uh, if if you're Oregon, you're incredibly frustrated because Addison Patterson had that was in the same boat and his got through, and Fale Dante's did not. And now he's probably saying there's probably some issue with the fact that he originally comes from Mali, and so where you know is there a holdup in that department? You know of, of his coursework there, but at the same time he he did four years of high school at Sunrise Christian Academy uh, in Kansas. So I don't, I don't, this is a a really confusing deal. Oregon has been very, very quiet on this. Uh, We reported last week that Oregon felt like there was going to be a chance he was going to get into school um, this past week. Uh, The the deadline to enroll has has since passed. And so now he's been forced to wait until December 14th and he's going to miss uh, some big games. I mean, he's going to miss nine games on the schedule, which includes Fresno State, the opener, Boise State, Memphis, and Portland, UT Arlington, the Houston game at home, uh, Seton Hall, the first game of the battle for Atlantis, and then they play two more games, one of which could be against Gonzaga, uh, and then he plays Hawaii as well. And then on the 14th, Oregon plays at Michigan. So highly unlikely he shows up on the 14th and plays in that, in that game. Uh, so he could miss, you know, almost the entire non-conference slate of basketball. And um, that's going to hurt Oregon. I mean, they, he was picked as a preseason all-conference player. Uh, and, you know, Oregon was picked as the conference's preseason favorite to win the league. I don't think his – I don't think removing him changes that, but it probably narrows the gap a little bit. And it probably is worth maybe one point or, you know, a couple, you know, maybe one first place vote. So yeah, maybe they aren't, maybe aren't, they aren't the first place team, uh, going into a conference play. If, if he, if the voters knew before, beforehand, he wasn't going to be able to play. But, um, thankfully, I guess for Oregon is, is that they, they get him for the most important part of their schedule, which is conference play, which will begin in, in early January. So if he gets here on the 14th, he'll probably have about three weeks, you know, about two or three games. To get himself acclimated before, you know, Pac-12 play starts. You know, and I think from an impact perspective, it, it can't be overlooked how, how significant this is. Um, Oregon was pretty thin up front already, and you take Dante out. You know, I, I remember when, when Oregon added and followed Dante, it was, well, thank God they finally have two legitimate 
big guys who can guard opposing centers because Francis Okoro is clearly the other guy. And now you take Dante out of the mix, and you're pretty thin at that position. Um, you've got other guys who are maybe, I don't know, it's kind of a blend of, of guys that are, you know, like Shakur Justin, who's strong but not tall, you know, not a particularly tall player at six foot seven, and then those freshmen that are six foot nine but all pretty lean and kind of lanky. So when you go up against, you know, potentially the number one overall draft pick in James Wiseman and Memphis, you need, who's like you a, need seven, a guy like this. Yeah, you, 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 Oregon now kind of is lacking the answer for him, unfortunately, to a certain degree. You know, it's going to have to really be a lot of Francis Socorro, maybe some double teams. Justin's going to maybe have to, you know, have the physical body to at least bang bodies with a guy like Wiseman in the post. But this can't be overlooked in terms of now Oregon is very limited from a depth perspective at the center position. And Dante was going to be the team's best defensive big guy, and now you don't have that for some pretty critical games. Like you said, the, that part of the schedule, you know, if Oregon can win, you know, seven of those nine games or six of those nine games, they're setting themselves up really nice for postseason play. But if they struggle and they lose more than that and they lose three or four or five games, which isn't impossible if you look at the caliber of opponent they're playing there, right? Um, then things, maybe the season takes kind of a, a weird turn and now you're in a situation where, you better hope the rest of the Pac-12 is respected in the computer metrics um, because you're going to, you know, your ability to pick up these big, you know, these top 25, top 50 wins are going to be kind of going out the window because you're not going to be at full strength. So it's, I think it's very significant in terms of getting this team ready for postseason play. And, and who knows, maybe this won't end up being, maybe Oregon, this team is going to be good enough where the lack of, uh, of Dante and a true center isn't necessarily going to be a huge detraction. But I, I don't know, I, I think you have to be concerned about what this does for the team's first couple of months of the season and how it potentially sets you up for postseason play because right or wrong, we've seen this over the last couple of years especially, it, it really does seem like games in November and December play a matter. really big Yeah, they matter. They play a pretty big role in the selection process and unfortunately Oregon is gonna be a totally different team uh in, in, you know for those ten games than they would be when hopefully they're playing at their best in February and March. So I don't know. It's it's a it's a bummer we don't get to see Dante. And again, it's another year where Oregon has all these highly rated recruits, and you're just not going to be able to have all of them available. You think back to last year where King starts out the season, the first eight or nine games he's hurt, and then Bull gets hurt right after that. Um, it's another deal here where you know we're going to be missing one of the top, you know one of these top tier recruits uh, for a big part of non conference play. So it's 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 got it can't be overlooked how significant that is from from where I'm sitting at least. You I, you look at this and I think Dana Altman said that they were they were hopeful that they could maybe redshirt a guy like Luke Wer, um this season. I I think with the uncertainty with with Dante that probably for now at least is going to be put on hold. They might see where they are after the first couple of games, probably the first three games of the year, and see if they need Luke Wer or not. And you know, maybe they know already. Like we, they need to play him. And you know, I, I think that might be a, a guy that has a, has a bigger increased role. Um, and you know, playing from going from not you know from redshirting to maybe playing six to, to eight minutes a, a game as you know, a long, athletic, you know, power forward, center type guy. Um, Shakur Justine probably takes on a bigger role now in the middle of the paint. Francis Sakura, like you said, he's going to be asked probably to play 30 minutes a game. Yeah. And that's going to be really hard for him um, until Dante gets back. But I, I think he's definitely 
a guy that's capable of doing that. It's just now yeah. can he, you know, game in and game out, say out of foul trouble, can he not get hurt? You know, I, I think he's a very good rebounder. He's a very good on-ball defender. He's a very good zone defender. He's able to, you know, switch off of guys and, and guard multiple positions. So I think Okoro from a, from a, a defensive standpoint will be okay. Um, offensively, what kind of steps up has he added to his game? Um, but, but it's going to force, I think more minutes out of him. It's going to force probably some, some more minutes out of Shakur Justine. It's probably going to force CJ Walker, a guy that probably was going to play a little bit more of a hybrid perimeter, you know, type forward to, to go down closer to the block and, and play more in, in the paint a little bit defensively at least, uh, in short spurts. So luckily for Oregon, they have a lot of options. I think that they can roll through, whether it's Francis Socorro, whether it's, you know, in terms of long athletic guys, they don't have yeah, a seven footer right. like Infale Dante was, but they have a lot of athletic and long guys, uh, that have come into the program and Shakur Justine, CJ Walker, Luke Wurr, and Chandler Lawson, those four guys, I think, you know, you can probably say we can get 20 minutes out of those four in some capacity, uh, to, to make do until Infale Dante comes back. All right, uh, let's step on to question number six here from at 247duck1. Who's in the fold, a.k.a. most likely to commit? Uh, this is from a recruiting perspective. And did the game change Kylie Ringo's top two? I'll let you start with that one as well. Matt. Yeah, I think the obvious one is Bennett Williams um, from uh, San Mateo Junior College, uh, former freshman All-American, uh, played his first year of football at Illinois, was originally from California, um, he's, I don't want to say quack watch, but I think he's probably the closest guy to committing a three star safety guy will have three years to play three. Um, if, if I think he's a perfect replacement, if Javon Holland elects, uh, to go pro after his junior season, um, he would have two years of replacing him and, you know, giving some depth to that position group. And, and plus remember that of, you know, Nick Pickett and Brady Breeze are both juniors. And so after next season, they're gone. So, you know, Williams makes a ton of sense. He's played college football before. He's got the ability to step in and play a couple different safety positions. I think he's the guy that's probably closest to commit. As for Keely Ringo, Oregon certainly made a huge impression. It was an atmosphere. It was an awesome atmosphere, uh, Friday night at Austin Stadium. And it probably doesn't, you know, it helps, it, it helps greatly seeing how well Diamante Lenore and, and Thomas Graham have played this season. Um, a lot of, like we said earlier in the show, national outlets are releasing their All-American list. I saw Diamante Lenore get on a couple as an All-American uh, cornerback. Um, they are two guys that could go pro this season. I think that's a realistic possibility. And so, you know, Oregon can go to can go to Ringo and can go to any defensive back that's either being recruited or committed right now and say, look, we have three juniors that are starting. We have a sophomore that's probably going to be. Uh, early entry draft pick after the 2020 football season, there is a high chance that in two years as a sophomore or as a redshirt freshman, if you came here, you are starting because of, you know, the open, you know, how much the depth chart opens up. Yeah, it'll be interesting at corner if they do see a couple of these guys leave. If they replaced uh, Graham and Lenore with a guy like Ringo and then you look at, Luke Hill, who's committed in this class, who's also a top 10 ranked corner nationally. 
Uh, you have Mikhail Wright and DJ James. It would be interesting to see what that group looked like next year. Obviously, you you want the experienced guys, but there's something to be said about the, the excitement factor with some of these young guys. And Mikhail Wright and DJ James have played at a high, high level. And I'm sure Ringo saw that and, and maybe in his head is going like, those guys would push me to play at a high level, and I would be part of a really talented defensive backfield. And, um, man, it would be interesting to have – you know, Oregon hasn't had too many five-star recruits on rosters for a while, right? And yep. Kayvon in one class, Ringo, and maybe Noah Sewell in the next would be a way to really kind of amp up, especially the fact that all those guys would be defensive players. How exciting would that be for – we talked about how great Andy Avalos has been as a defensive mind, as a defensive coordinator with the talent. If you can bring in five-star guys for that defense, I just think that, man, you could be really scary in a couple of years. And, and maybe that's something that helps keep Andy Avalos around is just the possibility – of, of coaching players that are at this high of a level. One thing I think that's also interesting is that don't sleep on Verone McKinley and um, Michael Wright, Luke Hill, and DJ James, or uh, Hill and, D- and James. Those four guys, like, and Steve Stevens as the fifth, like, that feels like the next the next wave of DBs coming out of Oregon, right? Like, we, we've we seen Thomas Graham and Lenore and Pickett and Holland and Breeze, and all those guys are, are going to be gone probably after the next year and a half. Right. And it feels like that next group of Hill, James, Wright, McKinley, and Stevens, because Stevens has played in every game. He's a special team star. He's When he's been in that safety, he's played well. We've seen, obviously, we've seen what Verone McKinley uh, and Michael Wright have done, and now that DJ James and um, Hill are, are doing a really good job, those you know, those five could feel like the next the next crop of guys, and it's it's going to Ringo and going to Bennett Williams and Avante Williams and Slusher and um, Luke Hill that's currently committed. Of you know that that group in this class is saying like, hey, we need you to show up and we need you to to get going. Yeah, and I want to just I, – I rewatched most of the game, especially the second half last night, and I thought DJ James actually played at a really high level in that game. He was on LaVisca Chenault quite a bit, and I, I know there were a couple penalties that were called to him. I watched those again and, and still think those are pretty awful calls, to be honest. Um, he's he's a pretty darn good young corner and a guy who was maybe felt a little bit like an afterthought when they brought him in, but in the you know these moments for him to get – a couple quarters on the field against one of the best wide receivers in the country in the Visca Chenault and, and really do a really good job on him. Um, that, that has to build his confidence up. And, and again, the, the next, the way that they're bringing, you know, they're building these, these defensive players and the depth is, is through in-game and reps and practice reps and getting players like that opportunities against players of that caliber um, can't, can't hurt. And I think a guy like DJ James felt like an afterthought, like I said a second ago, but, there's the possibility he becomes a really, really good football player. And second halves like he had against Colorado where you get experience like that, I think really help build up the depth of this group and build up just kind of the the optimism for what this defense can continue to be going forward because it's a talented young group, and it seems like everybody they have put out there has played at a pretty high level so far. Yeah. We haven't seen a steep drop-off yet from, from one of these defensive guys. And, again, I think that speaks a lot to the coaching staff and, and to the team for how well they they prepare each week. All right. Question seven from I am a bot 1989. Do you think Jawan Johnson will improve on the drops? I know people like to say he's shaking off the rust, but this was a big issue at Penn State as well. 
Love his size and speed. Just want to see him catch the ball when it's thrown perfectly. Um, obviously, the touchdown that went through his hands in, I think that was the second quarter, was disappointing because that was a absolute strike from Justin Herbert. And you go back and you watch that that pass from a couple different angles. It was Oof, absolutely, absolutely perfect on the money, right in stride, right in the back of the end zone. Honestly, could not have placed it any better than, you know, even if you were three yards from him and just, you know, flipped it to him. It was, it was right on the money, and you have to catch those passes, especially when you're coming in as a senior and you're being asked to be kind of one of the leaders of this group. You know, you lead by example. You have to catch those passes. And um, I know there were concerns about drops at Penn State. I know that when we watched practices in the spring, there were times where we watched him and he was inconsistent catching the football. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know if I have an answer in terms of will that improve or not, but I do think you have to be aware that there is some history with Jawan Johnson and not catching the football. And that may be a part of why he's transferred from Penn State and, and why he's looking to kind of elevate his draft stock at Oregon. Um, it's just that he has had issues with those, you know, he, you know, and, and again, we saw it already with that, that potential touchdown pass. And, and I hope it's corrected. You know, I hope it's not something that lingers for him where the, you know, that, that he becomes one of those guys where it's like, man, if he could just catch the football, he'd be so great because the physical tools, like you said, are all there. I mean, you watch him in action. You know, really, Colorado game was really the first time you saw him in extended action. And physically, he's like unlike anything Oregon has right now and, and unlike anything Oregon has had at receiver for a pretty long time. Uh, big, strong, runs runs better than I expected, honestly. Um, you know, the the touchdown route that he dropped, I mean, he, he, he was moving pretty good to get open there. Um, he has all the tools, but... If you can't catch the football consistently, that to me is a pretty ne- big negative, obviously. And you need to see that from him because, like we established earlier, he's in a position now where he could become Herbert's go-to guy or at least one of his favorite receivers. And he does not do himself any favors if he can't catch the football consistently. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you pretty much nailed it on the head. I, I think <clears throat> as the games get continue to go on and he plays a little bit more and more each week, you know, some of that will improve. Because we're also you know realize this, he hasn't been able to you know really run routes until right. recently, and so he can stand in front of a jug machine all he wants and catch passes out of the jug machine. But there's a huge difference in terms of standing still and catching the ball coming at you straight on or to the side than running with a guy, a defender on your back or in front of you or on your side and having to you know. Keep you know keep focus of, of keeping yourself in bounds while catching the football. I'm not trying to make excuses, but because you are right, you know he did have this issue at Penn State as well. So you know, but there is an assumed amount of rust that he will have to kind of shake off. Absolutely, yeah. There, you, 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 that part can't be overlooked. All right, last question from at Dmore44. Realistically, I think we have Avalos for one more year at best, and then it's Keith Hayward. But what do you think of the chances are of keeping him around long-term, like Clemson and Brent Venables? Venables has been the defensive coordinator at Clemson for, gosh, I don't know, a long time with a a number of opportunities for head coaching jobs. So that's kind of the context of that question. Um, Gosh, you hope it's longer than just one more year of this, right? I mean, like, if they could hold on to Avalos for four or five years, maybe we talked about this on on Monday's show, uh, that would be massive for just – keeping this program elevate, you know, for, for elevating this program, right? I mean, he's, he's really changed the whole tenor of this, this team. This is, this program for a long time had been so offensively oriented and the defense had always been kind of this, you know, secondary and kind of an afterthought. But this year, 
I don't think there's any question what this team's identity is and what this team's strength is. It's defensive, you know, and and uh, if if they lose him after one more year, it's going to be near impossible to find a replacement as good. I'll put it that way. I just I just I think you'd, you'd really have to comb the country and, and kind of honestly get lucky. I don't want to say they got lucky to get Obelos in this circumstance, but they certainly are. Have, it's been very beneficial having him around. And if it's only for a two-year stint, I think that would be a, a grave disappointment for, for Oregon fans. And probably internally, I'm sure, Cristobal does not want to see this guy leave because he realizes just how how big it is for his program and, and, and how much it, it makes his job easier to have, sure. frankly, a guy of, of his caliber working on his staff. I mean, that, that can't be overlooked. So one hopes it's not that two years and he's gone kind of thing. But the reality is that there are going to be schools coming looking after him, I'm sure, right after this season. So, Yeah, I mean, Bruce Feldman of The Athletic, who's one of the biggest voices in, as a national college football writer, uh, he posted a story on Tuesday saying that there's 23 up-and-coming coaches that are going to be in the mix for jobs, uh, whether it's a current head coach, position coach, or coordinator um, in the offseason. He listed both of Oregon's coordinators, Marcus Arroyo as an offensive coordinator. He said could be in line for some Mountain West head coaching jobs that open up. And then he also said you know, further down the list that Andy Avalos is also going to be a guy that could have uh, a possibility of, of taking – a head coaching job after one season at a Mountain West school. Um, I think this is just totally me speculating, but I would be pretty shocked if Oregon didn't get three years out of Andy Avalos. Uh, now, if I think Andy Avalos needs a contract bump, I think he needs to be paid more. And if they don't pay him more money, then yeah, I could see him, you know, hey, I want to, you know, I want to raise to stay here. And if Oregon balks at that, then I could see him going out and getting a, you know, a head coaching job somewhere. I, I, I think Avalos is a future star, uh, at, at this, at this level. Um, I, it's, yeah, I've been familiar with him for a couple of years, um, since Oregon played Boise State in 2017 in the Vegas Bowl. Um, and then I watched Boise State all out last year and now this year, obviously, with him at Oregon. Um, but I just, talking to him, I think you said the same thing before, Eric, talking to him, Watching the player interactions with him, he he reminds me of a head coach. He will be he will become a head coach, and I think it's it, this is me just totally speculating. But I I think it would be silly for him to just bounce after one year or two years uh, for a Mountain West job because I think he could he could get a better job than that. Like it wouldn't surprise me if a Power Five school uh, came in and offered him a head coaching job if he does you know what we've seen this year. For two, you know two or three straight years in a row, he could he could elevate himself to becoming you know a big time college football head coach. Now I guess it also becomes what are his goals and aspirations? Is it right? I want to I want to become a head coach as quickly as possible. Then yeah, like he could be gone relatively soon and and, and take the first job that that gets offered to him. But does or does he want? Hey, I I, I like where I'm at. I want to go somewhere. Uh, I want to become a head coach, but I don't want to just jump at the first opportunity. Then I, and I think that's what probably would happen. Um, then yeah, Oregon's going to get him for a couple of years, but I, long story short, Oregon's going to need to pay him significantly more money this season after this season, uh, than they were originally intended to pay. And just two possible destinations that would make some sense in some regard would be Boise State, obviously his, his history there as a player and as a coach. And then, the L.A. area in general, he comes from that part of the country. That's where he played high school. Um, 
maybe he comes back and is a coordinator or head coach at one of those schools. I mean, let's be honest, USC and UCLA are going to have to find new head football coaches probably in the not-too-distant future. Maybe he's a candidate for one of those jobs. But um, I don't think yeah, he's a candidate for USC. I mean, that... Maybe. Maybe not as a head coach, but yes, I mean, as a, as a coordinator, I'm sure they're going to, whoever they hire there as the next head coach, I'm sure he's going to be somebody that they look at very closely in terms of sure. job. And I, I mean, they, they absolutely should look him at him as a defensive coordinator, but if I'm him, USC's in turmoil. I mean, you're, you're already getting the good recruits. You're already getting paid handily at Oregon. You're already having success at Oregon. I mean, not much really changes. I mean, yeah, it gets a little easier to recruit at USC, but I mean that's that job is highly volatile, and if 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 you're not successful in two years, they're already talking about firing the entire staff. I mean that USC is like the ultimate risk and reward. Like if if it works out, you are a superstar. But if it doesn't work out in the first couple of years, you might lose your job. Yeah, no, no, there's no doubt. I'm just just in terms of geographics, those those schools and those parts of the country make sense for him. I don't know. It would be interesting to see. Where his mind is at, um, you know, is he somebody that is just looking for a head coaching job? And if that's the case, that might be better for Oregon if than if he's willing to take a coaching right. job somewhere else. And I kind of agree with you in terms of, like, I think he's got it pretty good right now. I mean, he's probably at one of the top ten programs in the country, top 15, depending on who you ask, at Oregon. And a program that is headed in the right direction, I think, under Mario Cristobal. I don't think there's any question that it's positive trajectory at Oregon right now. And I don't know if you can say that about too many other programs in terms of just what direction they're going. At this point in the season, I think Oregon is headed in a very positive direction. I think Avalos feels like a big part of that. So finding a way to keep him around is absolutely imperative. Um, you know, a long way of answering that question. I don't know what it is, but if it's just one more year at Oregon with, with Andy Avalos, I think that would be very disappointing. All right, that's going to do it for us, for the Ots and Audibles podcast, the mailbag edition. Thank you for everyone sending in their their questions. Um, continue to do this as well throughout the year. Uh, it's always good, good stuff, good questions, good answers, I think. I hope. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we'll, we'll certainly, uh, for Eric Scopo and myself, Matt Frame, we'll, we'll certainly talk to you again next week for another Mailbag Wednesday. But before that, we've got podcasts this week getting you ready for Washington. Adios, amigos.